The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Give me a tarantula. Give me a good lesson from two stand-up comedians who are uh, getting into an elevator. That sounds like a joke in itself. Two comedians step into an elevator. One of them is not carrying anything at all. And he looks over at the second guy who is carrying a box filled with props. And the guy who's not carrying anything at all, he spent his entire life uh, doing impressions and getting very good at impressions. And they're both going up to uh, do an audition for one of the big late night shows. And this person who has spent his whole life honing his impressions and has gotten this far that he is now auditioning for this show, still he can look over at the guy who's got the box full of props and he can think, my God, that guy is really prepared. I am not prepared at all. And then uh, as they tell each other later as they realize later the guy with the props the guy with the box full of stuff uh, he looks over at the guy who is holding nothing and he says he doesn't need these props he doesn't need any of this stuff he is extremely prepared Um, I've always loved that story and uh, I think it is a good lesson in not getting too distracted by what other people are doing. And as it happens, both of those uh, comedians made the show. Uh, But I've always loved that story. For those of you who are new listeners here, every now and then, I've only done it once before, but I'm going to keep doing it because it seems to work. I'll be doing an episode called uh, Give Me a Tarantula. And for some reason, that phrase stuck in my mind, um, like some sort of uh, surrealist or Dadaist prompt from back in the 19-teens or something like that. And it seems to be a prompt or just a bridge to another random uh, thing that I want to talk about. And these are just scattered things that wouldn't fill an entire episode, but when you, by themselves, but when you string them all together, sometimes fun things happen. So give me a tarantula. Give me the happiest story that I know. This is hard to pin down, but what I'm about to play for you is pretty damn close. This comes from an episode of Ken Burns Jazz, and it is the story of a woman uh, looking back on her childhood and what it was like uh, living in, 
course I can't remember the name of it because I still have a cold, uh, living near the Savoy Ballroom in Harlem as a child. And I remember watching this on my phone once and immediately putting it down and saying to my wife, would you like to see the happiest thing in the world? And I immediately put this on the TV to play for her. So tell me what you think of this. The windows was wide open, and so the music can come out, blast right into our living room. Every night we heard this marvelous music. And in those days, in the summer, the fire escape was where you sat to be cool. There was no air conditioning, nowhere. So by sitting on a fire escape, and our fire escape faced the back windows of the Savoy border. And you ever see shadows when people dance past the windows? You can see figures dancing to that music. And my sister and I would respond to what we saw in the windows of the Savoy, and we would get into the living room and dance to some of the best bands in the world. For years, Norman listened to the music and dreamed of going inside. In the spring of 1931, she got her chance. Precisely, it was Easter Sunday, 12 years old. And you know, in those days, you always had a little a new outfit to go out to church. Four o'clock, there's a matinee gonna be at this little ballroom. And after church, I dashed up to Lenox Avenue. And the people that went into the Savoy were shocked. And we used to just stand outside to watch them, and that's what I was doing. We started dancing outside the Savoy Ballroom. And I heard somebody say to me, hey, kid. And I turned around, and he was, he said, you, you. Because, and then I turned around, and I recognized immediately who it was. It was the great Twist Mount George in a white hat, white suit, white, everything, asking me to come up to the ballroom to dance with him. And he said, would you come and dance? I said, would I? He grabbed me, we dashed up the stairs. And I don't know whether I hit each step, because he had such long legs. And I remember just flying up those stairs with him. And you go through these doors. And I think it was the most beautiful place I'd ever seen in my life. The reds and the greens and the blues. And that was the first time I ever saw a band on a bandstand. I mean, I'd been seeing the shadows. And he, I'm so excited. He took me over there in the corner and sat me down and brought me a Coke and said, you sit here and I'll come and get you. And finally, it was his turn for Twistmouth George to come and he came and got me and he said, let's go. When they hit that music, all I know is I did everything. He just, he just threw me out. My feet never touched the ground. screaming and he put me on top of his shoulders, walked me around the ballroom and the people is clapping and talking about sh twist mouth and he took me right around to the front, right outside and put me back outside. <laughs> Greatest moment in my life and I'm excited, excited. I'm going to go home and tell my mother and my sister. And then I said, no, I better not say nothing. And isn't that really incredible? Uh, I, I could listen to that over and over again. If I am down or just whatever it is, 
Uh, let me put that on. Give me a tarantula. Give me these things that I've collected over the years that uh, have never really panned out, these unfinished things. And one of them, for whatever reason, has been to undertake a study of Greek vases, the red figure pottery, the black figure pottery that you can find in any illustrated history of ancient Greece. There's uh, just, I just looked today, there's wonderful examples of them on the pages devoted to these things on Wikipedia. And I just wanted to take some time out, this was like 20 years ago, to try and delve into this stuff. If you, especially if you're interested in the, in Greek mythology, what you find is that <clears throat> a lot of the scenes from, from myth, from probably from the tragedies that were being put on at the time, uh, many of the scenes uh, from those stories are later depicted uh, on the pottery, these wonderful uh, illustrations, these wonderful paintings. There's one of a uh, famous one of Medea in her chariot drawn by dragons after she has uh, killed her children and she is uh, standing, or not standing, she is flying in her chariot quite confidently facing her husband, Jason. There's another one I remember of the, uh, of the Greek sort of anti-hero, Ajax, who goes mad and commits suicide at the end of his story. And there is a, uh, a vase painting of him uh, setting the sword up that he's about to fall onto, uh, setting it up in the ground, and it looks very tender almost. And there's even there are even uh, vase illustrations, vase paintings uh, of a workshop of how you put these things together, and also of how you of how they would have uh, put statues together in ancient Greece as well, and probably. Uh, the one I would have noticed when I was younger as well was just a, a painting of the a pretty graphic depiction of the painting of the the symposia, the dinner parties that uh, seemed to have turned into something like orgies, and uh, how unashamed they all were to uh, show these things on their vases. In any case, I can remember being in Georgia 20 years ago and somehow or other getting stuck on this artwork. I mean, you, you think of the Parthenon, you think of the wonderful tradition of Greek uh, statues, <coughs> excuse me, and instead I get stuck on the vases. And I was penniless at the time and I found a good book of Greek art and I photocopied the whole thing because it was cheaper that way. But it so happened that uh, over the course of years the photocopied version of that book just sort of went by the wayside and disappeared. And then about 10-12 years later when I had a little bit of money I was able to buy that same book used at a used bookstore. But even in that case uh, it has remained on the shelf and has just been shuffled around. And I don't think I've ever looked into it at all. But uh, 
But that's a strange thing. That is just one of those unfinished things. Give me a tarantula. Give me the the story that or the, the the feeling that I had back in high school when I was big into Stephen King and I thought horror stories were basically the bee's knees and I wanted to I wanted to know more about horror fiction beyond just Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft and things like that and I found a wonderful book that said a uh, hundred best horror novels or something like that, 100 best horror stories of all time. And how annoyed I was when I turned to number one, and it was Clive Barker, someone whose stories I read and, and, and liked, but it was Clive Barker saying that the best horror story he knew was Shakespeare's Macbeth. And I was a horror snob at that time, not, a, not the Shakespeare snob that I am now. And so I was like, are you kidding me? Um, this is from 1605. Do I really need to read that? Is this really the best horror story that's ever been written? But I never forgot the first line of what Clive Barker said. He said, sometimes the first story, sometimes these are the best stories because they are the first ones. Now, of course, that's not the first one. That's not the, the earliest even, that uh, doesn't even predate all the Dr. Faustus stories. But there's something to all of that that I wanted to connect with something that may seem pretty far afield, and that is the French photographer uh, Eugene Agete, who lived from 1857 to 1927. And he's sometimes called the father of modern photography, and indeed he gets going around 1890 or so. Uh, not too many decades into the medium even existing. And I came across his photographs back in 2017 or so, quite by accident. I think I was reading about the early 1900s uh, cultural life in Europe around the turn of the century, of the 20th century. And there was mention of these early uh, photographers, and Agite was one of them. And I got as many books of his as I could, uh, from interlibrary loan, and just sort of sat stunned at them. Um, I couldn't believe that these images, they're mostly of Paris, he was a photographer of Paris at the turn of the century, and then I believe he sort of stopped and then took it up again in the 1920s for the few years before he died. And they are really incredible, I'm pretty sure too, if you go to Wikipedia. His page there will have some good examples. And he also ends up going out to the countryside as well. And it was an interesting thing. I don't know much about the history of photography, but I knew that these pictures were something special. Uh, they, weren't, uh, they weren't just your ordinary photographs. There was something of great art and heft and meaning to these photos. And... This past year, I went looking for those books again, and I found another one where it showed uh, Agite's photo of Paris and then that same place as it looks today. And the person who edited the book, I believe it was him who edited the book, 
said that Eugene Ajte was the greatest photographer who ever lived. Now, I, I know that uh, I'm fond of making superlatives like that on this podcast, and I'm trying not to, uh, because it is just, uh, it is basically all down to opinion at some point. But I'm always struck when I see someone else's superlative, and I was happy to see it said about Ajte. But I also wondered, in line with Macbeth, and, uh, and now with photography, um, what does it mean? What does it say about the way that we teach something like photography or poetry or literature that someone can come along <clears throat> fairly early in a medium's existence, in this case photography, and without the benefit of whatever it is that photographers today study, which is about 150 years or so worth of history, and technique, and obviously examples all over the place, and not just the technology, uh, or including the technology of all the cameras, everything that you can think of. And yet, this person who had the benefit of none of that, who could barely probably even conceive of photography uh, as an art, I think the story says is that he picked up uh, a camera at one point, he was trying to be an actor, trying to make a living as an actor. He picks up a camera and starts taking pictures, and the next year he is just setting himself up as a city photographer for fine artists, quote-unquote fine artists, or for writers who want to write books about Paris. And that is all he does. Um, and I just wonder what that says about how if we're not going to say it says anything about how we teach something like photography or poetry or literature, at least it's worth saying that sometimes, uh, if not the best people show up at the beginning, sometimes the best people show up out on the edges, the ones who don't need that formal education, the ones who don't need to, I don't know how you would say it, swim through a comprehensive history of a medium of playwriting or of poetry or of acting or of photography or whatever it is. They don't need to do all of that in order to get going, or they have their own way of doing it. If we want to think, again, back to the Greeks, if the first are the best, um, or in many cases the first are the ones who get everything going, we of course have Herodotus, we have Thucydides for the historians, we have Homer and Hesiod with the poets, the first poets to be written down. And, and this sort of brings to mind something that a friend of mine asked me the other day, and he just came right out and he said, Tim, do you consider yourself an autodidact? Do you consider yourself basically self-taught, self-learned. And I guess I suppose that I would. I don't like labels, but I would probably have to give that one to myself um, so that I would almost have to be drawn to someone like Ajte because he is in the similar vein. He is just setting himself up and seeing what he's doing. He's not really trying even to do anything. 
It just so happens that the images that he makes um, live, and they will continue to live. And that is another reason why I'm sure that I have attached myself to someone like Vincent van Gogh, who had his own comprehensive and encyclopedic uh, inventory in his mind of the history of art as he knew it. He had his own inventory of images that he would that he could call on almost at any moment. If you read his letters, there is uh, no place that he lives in. There is no landscape that he sees. There's no person that he comes across. There's no street scene that he comes across that he doesn't compare to a painting, a print, or an image that he has seen in a museum or in reproduction or in a magazine <coughs> somewhere. And that's kind of fascinating. There's a moment I just had reading his biography and his letters where this is before he's begun painting at all. He's really just started uh, drawing again after a long break. And this is the first time he's taken that uh, process seriously as something that he wants to do. And he's wasted, quote-unquote, wasted the last 10 years of his life trying to be an art dealer or working in an art shop, trying to be a bookseller, trying to be uh, a preacher, a properly educated, uh, you know, uh, full-degree preacher, the no-degree evangelist who just walks around and preaches. Um, and he's ended up in the mining region, the Borinage region of Belgium. And that is where he realizes these people don't need the Bible, they just need love and help and a bit of compassion. And all of these things fall away from him. And what he's left with after the end of a long story that I hope to share in the next episode, actually, what he's left with is a drawing. And there's a moment where he begins to ask his brother, can you send me this magazine? Can you send me this exercise book? Can you send me all of these other things? And then at one point he says, uh, do you know this picture that's in the Louvre? And he describes an illustration that's in the Louvre that he probably saw a year or two or three years earlier. He knows what side hall it's off of. He knows what it looks like and he can describe it perfectly. That strikes me as being something, something different from formal education. That is a kind of... Uh, ingesting of art or of literature. And of course, Van Gogh was a great fan of literature. He says, Shakespeare and Dickens are as important to me uh, as Rembrandt or any other painter is. And that strikes me as being something more than uh, just what he would have learned if he had taken formal classes in all of this stuff. So the first is the best. The first is maybe closest to the heart, or coming, in, coming at it on your own might be called that. Or we should just expect that some people will come out that way, and not everybody has to. But there we have it. Give me a tarantula. Give me uh, a good description, the best that I've come across, actually, of just how much of Shakespeare we wouldn't have if it weren't for 
translation. This comes from Jonathan Bates' wonderful book, uh, Soul of the Age, A Biography of the Mind of William Shakespeare. Now, as much as I like this book, I should say that uh, still it does not hold a candle to Peter Aykroyd's biography of Shakespeare. And again, I am almost certain that is because uh, uh, Peter Aykroyd is not considered a formal Shakespeare scholar by anybody. He is more of a popular historian at this point. He is the autodidact, and Jonathan Bate is the respected uh, academic historian. But even still, he goes through uh, a wonderful catalog here of when it is that the, the Latin poetry that Shakespeare relied on, the Latin literature, uh, Virgil, Ovid, and Plutarch, uh, when it was that they were translated uh, in England so that the adult Shakespeare, well, the child Shakespeare would have had access to it in his early education, and the adult Shakespeare would have been able to use them in his plays. Just imagine, uh, Shakespeare is born, I should know this, shouldn't I? Shakespeare is born in 1564. So uh, just check out how, uh, how these earliest translations in England worked so well to, uh, to Shakespeare's later strengths. This is what Jonathan Bates says. The translation for a wide readership of the major literary works of Rome was then a new phenomenon in the 1550s. That is only about 10 years before Shakespeare was born. It began with the publication of two older renderings of Virgil, which had previously only been available to elite readers in manuscript. Galwyn Douglas's complete Aeneid, originally undertake, undertaken at the Scottish court in 1513, and the Earl of Surrey's translation of the second and the fourth books of the same poem, done in manuscript sometime before Surrey's execution, that's right, his execution, in 1547. In the year of Queen Elizabeth's accession to the throne, there appeared seven books of a new translation of the Aeneid by Thomas Fair, and uh, Virgil's Aeneid, of course, has 12 books. It was completed by Thomas Twin a decade and a half later. Jasper Haywood's Troas, Thyestes, and Hercules Furens, published in successive years from 1559 to 1561, brought into being the English Seneca, whose ten tragedies were collected in 1581. Arthur Golding, a name that might be familiar to some of you out there, uh, Arthur Golding undertook the first four books of Ovid's Metamorphosis in 1564, and the whole 15 books three years later, good for him. He also produced versions of Caesar's Gallic Wars and several Roman historical works. Ovid's shorter works were also translated, as were Horace's poems, and among prose works, The Golden Ass of Apuleius, and selections from Livy's History of Rome and Pliny's Natural History. A variety of Greek authors, too, were Englished by way of Latin. Not only moralists and historians, such as Xenophon and Polybius, but also the romancer Heliodorus, whose novel Aethpicure 
translated by Thomas Underdown in 1569, was popular enough to be reprinted four times in less than 40 years. So that is good timing, I would say. But that brings another thing to mind. And this comes from the Penguin Classics, uh, the little paperback of the Norse epic, The Saga of the Volsungs, as translated by Jesse Bayak. This is uh, Richard Wagner writing in a letter to 1851 about how much trouble he has gone through to get a copy of the Saga of the Volsung. This is what Richard Wagner says. Already in Dresden, I had all imaginable trouble buying a book that no longer was to be found in any of the bookshops. At last I found it in the Royal Library. It is called the Volsung Saga, translated from Old Norse by H. van der Hagen in 1815. This book I now need for repeated perusal. I want to have the saga again, not in order to imitate it, rather to recall once again exactly every element that I already previously had conceived from its particular features. And what strikes me here about translation in Shakespeare's day and how much work it took Richard Wagner to find a copy of the Saga of the Volsungs for his operas is how valuable books and translations uh, used to be. Um, it strikes me that anyone out there, I can uh, just uh, get pick up the phone where I'm recording this episode right now, type in Saga of the Volsungs, probably into Wikipedia, and uh, find some badly scanned or uh, badly OCR'd version just cut and pasted into a web page. I can find this Penguin Classics version, and I can have it delivered to me, as we know very well, uh, in two days with Amazon. Um, I can go to any university library here in Pittsburgh and uh, take out a copy of it, or and it's short enough that I could probably just photocopy it. Um, there is nothing at all. There is no great length that I need to go to get any of these weird old books that uh, might strike my fancy. And uh, in the same case, uh, there's nothing all that special that I need to do or that any of you out there need to do to get a copy of Ovid, to get a copy of Polybius, to get a copy of the Roman dramatists, the Roman tragedians, um, get a copy of the Greek historians, to get a copy of Plutarch, uh, any of this stuff, um, you can get it with a snap of your finger. And if you have uh, a Kindle or something like it, uh, you can have it um, probably in the time that that silence took. Uh, if you have it on automatic uh, download or automatic purchase or whatever it is, uh, that's good. That's good for people who aren't in the academy but are still interested in these things. Um, it's good to have access to all of these things simply for the sake of the way human the way human curiosity works. I think of how my daughter is just 
pulling at every string she can, um, anyone she encounters throughout the day, uh, a waitress at a restaurant, uh, the hairdresser is cutting her hair, uh, someone who is working at the science museum that we just saw, uh, a basketball player that she saw on TV, uh, an artist whose YouTube video she and I like to watch, uh, whoever it is, uh, an hour later, she is imitating them and trying to do what they are doing. She is playing teacher in front of her own teachers during the school day um, so that it's good for someone like her and everyone else like her out there that there should be access to all of these things so easily. But at the same time, it seems worth reminding ourselves that even though it is easy, it also doesn't make it cheap, I suppose. It's not just another sitcom. It's not just uh, an answer on Jeopardy. It's not just a piece of trivia. Um, I mean, this is shit that has lasted. This is, uh, pardon the expression, this is shit that's important and has uh, remained so for so long and for a very good reason and has been given an amount of reverence that I think that ease sort of eradicates or hides somehow. And there's a wonderful moment, uh, again, I will give my shout out to Peter Aykroyd. There's a wonderful moment in Peter Aykroyd's book about the history of the English imagination called Albion, where he's talking about the Venerable Bede living there in England in the 8th century, I believe. And uh, how he has the largest library in the country of maybe 200 books, 200 manuscripts. And how much more precious books were when there really were hardly any of them at all. And he goes so far as to say that the generation that uh, the Venerable Bede lived in, his generation and the one after that, uh, probably included the most learned people that ever lived in England, what we call England right now, simply because uh, they knew everything that was known to them at the time. Uh, there's also the, the, same, the same story about Isidore of Seville down in Spain, kind of hiding himself away and creating a, an encyclopedia of known knowledge and seeing if he can go ahead and do that. That just struck me as being something, something worth mentioning here. But uh, give me a tarantula. There is, uh, give me the earliest memories I have of Art Bell, Coast to Coast AM, or Art Bell, Dreamland, or as Halloween episodes, Art Bell, Ghost to Ghost.
high desert in the great American Southwest. And I mean great. Uh, good morning, everybody. I'm Art Bell, and this is a program called Coast to Coast AM and Well Beyond. Actually, all the time zones of the world, because that's where we're heard. Great to be here. It's a Friday night, Saturday morning. I'm going to loosen up a little bit, and boy, are we going to have fun. Art Bell, uh, talking about aliens, alien abductions, and conspiracy theories, and what we would now call uh, ancient alien stuff and all the rest of it. Um, uh all the Hale-Bopp stuff that he got in trouble for. Many of you may not even uh, have listened to Art Bell, but he was someone who was very formative to me. And I can see where the conspiracy stuff and the alien stuff and the all of that has just turned into uh, poison these days with QAnon and the rest of it. But back then, back when I was 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, and especially when I would have uh, one of my regular ear infections and I had no way of falling asleep at night. I would just put Art Bell on. And it was just this guy out in uh, Pahrumpth, Nevada, uh, broadcasting out of the back of his house, I believe. And it wasn't just some, you know, it wasn't just some garage setup. I mean, the guy knew what he was doing. And uh, and I started listening to him again during 2020 when I became sort of incapacitated because of a back injury that was that really led to a leg injury and I couldn't walk very easily and I couldn't uh, sleep very easily and I went looking on iTunes I went looking on what's the name of the of the uh, yeah, it's just called the Apple Podcasts. You just search for Art Bell and you can find tons of people who have just uploaded old Art Bell episodes where he would just be talking throughout the entire night, uh, sometimes just with open phones, just talking to people. And one of the most miraculous things that I found being up late at night uh, two years ago uh, 20 years after I first began listening to him, was listening to the episode he did uh, following September 11th, 2001, where he basically says, uh, I've been watching the same news as the rest of you. I don't have anything new to add. And so it's just going to be uh, three hours, four hours, five hours of open phones, just call and talk. Um, and that is almost better than the news. That is almost better than actual information. That is, uh, those are uh, human voices. And I should say that one of those unfinished things from earlier in this episode that I should mention, one of those was, and has been ever since I was, was listening to Art Bell, was doing a radio show. I can remember in the sixth grade, sixth or seventh grade, uh, trying to figure out how it would be that I would hook this rinky-dink uh, microphone up to my equally rinky-dink uh, little tape player boombox that took all the, the, the D batteries in the house just to work. Um, how, I would, how I would record myself... Uh, 
the way you would do it on the radio. And um, then fast forward until just a few years ago when I would fill my notebooks at the beginning with a list of things that I wanted to do. And one of them was something called Golden Bow Radio, where I would just read James George Fraser's Golden Bow, uh, just stories here and there, because it's 13 volumes. And who's going to go through 13 volumes? But I was willing to do it just to find the good little stories in there. One of them being about uh, an Irish woman from the late 18, from the 1890s, who, uh, I forget the entire story, but it's an old story where she's basically uh, believed that she's a witch and she is uh, burned alive and killed, I believe, by her husband and by her neighbors. And, uh, but in any case, that's one of the stories that I wanted to read for Golden Bow Radio. And it took a very long time. It took until the pandemic to suddenly realize that I could just do what I'm doing right now. And that is that was really the precursor to all of this stuff. And I realized I can't even hear the ABBA song, uh, Dancing Queen, without thinking of it as being bumper music for Art Bell's show. What a, what a great companionship a disembodied voice is to a teenager who is lonely and can't sleep, uh, just as well as it is to a guy who's like 41, 42, can't get up, uh, can't really walk, can't really fall asleep, doesn't want to make a bunch of noise to wake anybody else up in the house. And so you hear Art Bell all over again. Great nostalgia, great company, great all of that. And again, it reminds me of museums that I've taken my daughter to, where you see the, the earliest radios, these things that were the size of, you know, a uh, little take-to-college uh, refrigerators are now. And uh, what a... What a bizarre thing that must have been when those were first introduced, that someone in New York City, just as well as someone out in Pratt, Kansas, could be listening to the same radio show, the same voice. Uh, Seamus Heaney, I think, uh, spends, or I think the frame story for Seamus Heaney's uh, Nobel Prize acceptance lecture his speech, is all about hearing the voices along the wireless as a child in uh, rural Ireland, in the north of Ireland, living on the farm, and suddenly hearing the sound of the world uh, coming through. It was new, and it was rare, and it was cherished somehow. And nowadays, that's just, I won't, I won't say it's cheapened, but it's it's not rare and it's not new. And so it can just seem anecdotal. It can just seem another story, quote unquote, another story about technology that doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, so what? A million people can be watching the same TV show. Who cares? Uh, that doesn't say anything about our lives. Uh, 
the line of T.S. Eliot's that uh, the only thing uh, uh, the only thing the television offers is for uh, millions of people to laugh at the same joke and still be alone. Um, but at the same time, I think there is something different uh, there. Our earliest experiences of something. Now we're back to those first things again. The first the first things, the first experiences, the earliest memories of this, whatever this is, being the most powerful because they are the first. I think there's something really to that. But give me a tarantula. Give me William H. Macy in uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. Many of you will remember this. This is still the perfect movie of his for me. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's, that is. Um, but William H. Macy in Magnolia, who is in love with, has a crush with uh, the bartender. And he just wants to go, actually he does. He gets a little drunk and he goes up to the bartender and says to him, you know, uh, I would be good to you. I would be good to you as a whole speech. I will be good to you. I would be good to you. We would be good together. Uh, I have a lot of love to give. That's the thing that I remember. I have a lot of love to give. And I thought of that when I came to a letter that Vincent van Gogh wrote to his brother. And this is a hint of what will be coming in the very next episode. Um, after van Gogh has squandered everything that he's ever tried, everything that anyone else has ever tried to give him. His family has given him jobs. He's uh, lived in Paris. He's lived in London. He's lived elsewhere in England. Uh, he's gone to, uh, uh, he's gone back home. He, and then he finally ends up in the mining region of Belgium, the Borinage. And he's just trying to tell his brother, I don't know what to do, but please don't, uh, don't preach at me. Don't tell me that I'm a waste. Um, I need uh, the space to be able to figure these things out. And he says, uh, one does not always know what he can do, but he nevertheless instinctively feels, I am good for something. My existence is not without reason. How can I be of use? How can I be of service? There is something inside me, but what can it be? I am good for something. My existence is not without reason. How can I be of use? How can I be of service? There is something inside me, but what can it be? And if I keep reading that, I'm going to cry. But, uh, it's nice that, at least in the biography, anyhow, the very next line quotes him uh, in his next letter where, he, where Vincent tells his brother, I am busy drawing and I, am, and I am in a hurry to get back to it. I am busy drawing and I am in a hurry to get back to it. Um, I have a lot of love to give. Uh, I would be good to you. I am good for something. My existence is not without reason. How can I be of use? How can I be of service? There is something inside me, but what can it be? 
Uh, I would just say to anyone out there who has made it 47 minutes in is that uh, this is not to say that Van Gogh could have been helped if he was someone who was on his own trajectory. And maybe none of us can be helped. My episode on stubbornness way back when was my first indication of that. It's very possible that uh, no one could have reached me through my stubbornness to show me a way or give me the kind of help or guidance that perhaps I needed as a creative person in my late teens or early 20s. But still, uh, if you know of a person out there who needs a chance, who just needs a smile, needs a, a look, needs a bit of help, um, who's floundering, who has been given jobs by family and friends and just failed, failed, failed. But it's very obvious to you and to them, as Van Gogh says, I am good for something. My existence is not without reason. How can I be of use? How can I be of service? If there is any way that you can help them find that use and find that reason, by all means, uh, try to help them do that. Um, I can count on my hands, the, I count on my fingers, the four or five or six people who have reached out to me, and there's one person recently who has done uh, an immense job of that as well, uh, who have reached out to me and helped me when I really did need it, gave me some guidance, some realistic guidance, what you might call tough love, but also just the lost person, and I would consider myself one of them in many ways, uh, the one who says, I have a lot of love to give. I have a lot of passion to give. Uh, but no one is listening, or it appears that no one is listening. Or I don't know how to make people listen. And if they don't listen, uh, there is something inside me, but what can it be? I would just say, listen to them. Uh, show them that they are good for something. Show them that their existence is indeed not without a reason. Show them how it is that they can be of use. Show them how it is that they can be of service. Uh, their love and their tenderness and their warmth. Because there's only people who feel so much who would ever say a thing like that. Um, and so we should should be uh, just as open and feeling to them as they have been to us. And that's where I will leave it tonight. Thank you, as always, for listening. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.